Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. theater lovers, both out and proud and on the DL. And welcome to Broadway Breakdown, a podcast discussing the history and legacy of American theater's most exclusive address, Broadway. This is the first of many series devoted to specific artists that have helped shape Broadway as we know it today, both for better and for worse. It is called A Little Sondheim Music, and it is dedicated to the musicals of one Mr. Stephen Sondheim. I am your host, Matt Koplick, the least famous and most opinionated of all the Broadway podcast hosts. And with me today, you know her, you love her. She's a fan favorite. Uh, she's a writer, producer, personality historian. She puts me to shame with my knowledge and her lipstick game is on point. <laughs> Please welcome back to the pod, Miss Jennifer Ashley Tepper. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for having me. I'm psyched to chat about this. I'm so psyched to have you back. How does it feel to be back on the breakdown? Is it as if you never said goodbye? Absolutely. It's awesome. I'm so excited to geek out about another thing. Me too. Uh, a very specific thing this time. And yet somehow I think that we're going to still be just as all over the place as we were. With the last one. <laughs> yeah, me too. Um, Janet, what are we discussing today? What's the Sondheim musical? The 1964 Broadway musical, Anyone Can Whistle, a legendary show by all points of description. <laughs> all points of description. How were you first introduced to this show? Because as you you infamously have been invested in Broadway histories from a very young age. So I can only imagine at like seven years old, you're going to Temple <laughs> telling people about the Miracle Song. You know, I definitely heard Anyone Can Whistle via cast recording in high school after I'm sure like many people becoming familiar with a few of the more well-known songs like There Won't Be Trumpets through other means. Um, but I definitely didn't see a production of Anyone Can Whistle until the amazing Encores production. Uh, right. So my education of it was for sure via that original cast album, which I've since discovered was recorded just like Merrily's the day after the show closed, which I find really fascinating and wonderful when it comes to cast album history. I had that exact same thought in the shower today because I'm sort of, <laughs> as I'm like plowing through all this Sondheim and and I've been recording everything sort of out of order, I I was like, I was listening to the Anyone Can Whistle original cast album today. And I'm like, this is really the most like showbiz old school broad, uh, Broadway sound Sondheim has written until probably Merrily. Those are two like of his most broadway -y scores and they're two of his biggest flops and both of which were recorded the day after they closed <laughs> yeah there's there's some parallels my other favorite anyone can whistle merrily connection and there's a few is the fact that anyone can whistle which you know ran for nine performances and has the history that it did came out the same season as funny girl and hello dolly and also the same year as fiddler and of course we get that delicious lyric in merrily of like it's funny girl fiddler and dolly combined it's a hit and so um mm -hmm. it's kind of like the comeuppance for the story of anyone can whistle Whistle. Yeah, it's what a year 1964 was. And what's interesting is that actually something that I love, because uh, Funny Girl, Hello Dolly were the same season as Anyone Can Whistle, as was She Loves Me. But yes. Fiddler was the following season. And it was yes. sort of a nice 
comeback for Bach and Harnick to have like written She Loves Me, have it sort of be so appreciated, but kind of just swept aside for bigger shows. And then to come back the following season with Fiddler, just like pissing all over the street, being like, we did it. Yes, there's a lot of vindication stories in these tales of 64, 65, aren't there? Um, I also think it's just so crazy to me that like things could happen so fast then, you know? Yeah, it's, <laughs> well, so I mean, I said it in the Gypsy episode, it's amazing to think that Gypsy was essentially written in four months. And yeah. on top of that, the whole show came about before there was any creative team involved. It was just like, Ethel Merman's going to play this character from this book and we don't know who's going to write it. We don't know what the show <laughs> is. We just know this. Uh, totally. So it's, cr- it's crazy to think that like that there was a time on Broadway when that was just sort of, like no one batted an eye. They're like, yeah, what are you talking about? We'll figure yeah. the logistics of writing the show. We'll figure out. <laughs> Yeah, I, you know, I reread the Anyone Can Whistle section of uh, Finishing the Hat, Sondheim's mm-hmm. book, in order to, you know, prepare for this chat. And he talks a lot about the way that, ch- like, developing musicals changed the more that directors became, like, auteurs. And I mm-hmm. think that, um, you know, in the conversation of, like, Arthur Lawrence writing the book for Anyone Can Whistle and also directing, it's something that is pretty relevant to think about if a show like this happened today, how long it might take to develop. Yeah. Um, how long would it take to develop and... and- they, he complains how like few changes they really made out of town just because they were tight on money and, and all that. And I'm like, I don't think anything would change all that much today just because of the logistics of of how scenery works, the time constraints of like preview processes. Like if anyone can whistle were to come out today and it was the same situation of like the writers, the director and all this other stuff, like I don't, they probably would be in the same pickle of like, the show makes no sense, but we don't really, we can't really change the whole book because everything is computerized and timed and- and whatnot. Well, talking about how it might be different today in terms of the out-of-town tryout, I was definitely struck in remembering the history of this musical that, you know, two people died during the out-of-town tryout. And if that happened with a musical in the year 2021, the social media, like, I can't even imagine. We just have to say, so, you know, there was a dancer in Anyone Can Whistle that fell into the pit on top of a string player who had a stroke and subsequently died. And then there was also um, the actor who originated the role of Shub, how do you say it? Shub, Shub? Shub, Shub. Shub. Um, the actor who originated that role, um, who had a heart attack in his hotel room during the out-of-town trial and was replaced, is a crazy part of the show's history because actually there was a lot of criticism of Angela Lansbury's performance. And then once that actor sadly passed away and was replaced with the understudy, it was kind of discovered that what had been making Angela Lansbury so insecure about her performance was that original actor who was kind of trolling her. I mean, there's just so much to unpack and I cannot <laughs> imagine the social media of it all should like events like that have occurred during an out-of-town tryout in modern times <laughs> you, <laughs> this is why i love having john on the show because i have all this written down it's like all stuff i was like we'll get to and jen's like bam 30 seconds i know we haven't even talked about the plot yet and we've talked about the string what plot like girl what plot <laughs> Well, that's the thing though. It's like when I re-listened to this, it's like they were, they were trying to do so many things at the same time. And that's Mm. part of the reason why the, you know, creators have cited why they think it did how it did. But there is like a crazy plot and there is a lot going on. It's definitely, there's just, they're trying to lampoon so many things at the same time, but there, there, there is a plot. No, there is a plot. It's not like, um, I don't know. It's it's not like a hair where you're like I can sort of find a plot through all of this. It's there is there is a through line. Uh, it's just not really thought out super well. There's a lot of stuff that uh, falls flat and doesn't really add up. And I was watching 
the encores production because I did not get to see it live. I watched the encores production and I'm watching the encores production. And I'm thinking like, I mean, yeah, it's absurd, but like it kind of makes sense. Like I can sort of, I can follow it. And then I was watching the talk back afterwards and David Ives was like, oh, I cut a lot of stuff and like yeah. had to, I'm like, oh, did you re- rewrite anything? He's like, I only kind of rewrote one section where it was just, you know, uh, Faye Apple and Hapgood are like, oh, you, it's, it's you. And they've never met before. So I had to write something to make sense that like now they know who each other is or they knew yeah. who each other was. Uh, and when I read that, when I saw that, I then found the script, which I then sent you and I'm reading the script and I'm like, oh, the show actually doesn't make a ton of sense because they're, as you said, they are trying to do so much. So like whatever plot that is there is bogged down by just all the things that Arthur Lawrence is trying to achieve with the book and the things sometimes trying to achieve with the score. And it's less that it's the story itself is less confusing. It's more that how it's how it goes about is kind of confusing. It's the presentation, not the themes and not the plot. necessarily. Right. But well, still, I, I maintain when I say what plot, like nothing really happens in much of act two and very little happens in act one. It's it's I, yeah, I maintain that. Yeah, it's really so much of what you're saying, I think, drives the point home that it's a fascinating combination of like, first of all, the show is pointing a finger at conformity and like what makes someone considered sane versus insane and um, all of that. But the combination of how complex some of the writing is with also how conformist some of it is um, and combined with the same thing with the plot, like some of the plot is very traditional and some is so non-traditional that it's just a fascinating combination of things. But there's so much in this score that it is worthwhile in itself but it also points to like you know kind of innovations Sondheim would make later um complex musical sequences like the use of pastiche so many different things that are really interesting to look at when you look at Sondheim's whole career um but if we're gonna pin down like the actual plot I mean what's crazy when I thought about it is the whole initial premise being that a mayor um played by originally Angela Lansbury is basically um, manufacturing like a fake miracle in order to bring financial prosperity back to a town. And there's so much in the song Me and My Town, which I love. It's like maybe even my favorite in the whole score. Um, mm-hmm. That just reminds me of New York City right now and of some of our political leaders in a way that doesn't feel like, oh my God, if we did Anyone Can Whistle Now, there'd be such parallels. Like, Mah. but mm-hmm. legit, like it, it feels like I was listening to Me and My Town being like, oh, I feel like I've heard the governor say things like this in the last couple of weeks because, you know, with such disasters happening in a town you know kind of shining on the good thing like it's there's a lot of parallels that I found really really cool during this yeah it's there are a lot of parallels I kind of get prickly when people use the term ahead of its time only because I think that applies to so I feel like it doesn't apply that often to shows that people actually think it applies to I don't necessarily think anyone can whistles ahead of its time. I think that it's very, uh, is it, I never know if it's prescient or prescient. I think it's, <laughs> I think it's the second one. Prescient. Uh, I can't, I, I feel like there's some parts of it that are prescient in that regards of just sort of, as you said, how it lampoons politics and how it lampoons uh, mob mentality. But yeah, like I think it's all, I think what also helps is that it's just such a, overall cynical show until like really the last 10 minutes let's say right actually no I take that back the last four minutes it's a cynical (laughs) show until the last four minutes and I think there's a place for cynicism to actually outlast optimism in terms of timeliness because history tends to repeat itself so Mm -hmm. uh 
when we go through a really great period with our culture and our society, we look at, you know, the optimistic shows and we go, oh, you know, that, that, that works so well. And the, but the cynicism shows also work well too. And then we go through a negative part, the cynicism, the cynical shows do really well and the optimistic shows don't do well. So there's, it's, I'm not entirely sure what I'm saying anymore. I'm talking in circles and I think that's relevant for anyone can whistle. <laughs> no, I totally thought about a lot of the same things. You know, one other show I thought about when I was looking at anyone can whistle is you're in town um, because mm. the way that the message of you're in town essentially is like, you know, Hey audience, your way of life is unsustainable. And like, we're killing the environment and we're not going to be able to live in these towns. Um, it is, it does have some parallels to anyone can whistle, but they just, um, as you said, timing is everything. And it depends a little bit on the timing, but they take it so far and anyone can whistle. Like the fact that they've, you know, Sondheim and Lawrence and other people who were around for the original production talk so much about at the end of act one, they kind of turn the mirror on the audience and are like, Hey, it's actually the audience that are crazy. And all the actors on stage are uh, like clapping and laughing at the audience. Like Sondheim says something that I think really struck me about, um, you know, we were not just being like the smart ass kids in class, but we were pretending like we knew better than everyone in the class, including the teacher and like audiences in the industry just were like, who are these smart ass kids? And I think that it says a lot about like kind of some of the reception of the show at the time, even though one of the most moving things about Anyone Can Whistle that I kind of came upon again in my re-looking at it um, was, and did you find this as well? The fact that um, four of the show's investors in the original production were Richard Rogers, Julie Stein, Frank Lesser, and Irving Berlin, because mm -hmm. the old guard of Broadway was like, this is something new and worthwhile. And we want to support this, these, you know, young creators. And I think that is really kind of wonderful and cool. Also, you know, Sondheim talks so much about all the backers auditions he did for it, which obviously, you know, is part yeah. of the same story of them investing. And I just think, um, you know, it was very clear that for all of the things that anyone can whistle, quote unquote, failed to do, it did break ground um, in a lot of cool ways. Yeah. And we'll get to that at the end of the episode when we sort of talk about the legacy of anyone can whistle, because there is um, there is a legacy here, uh, which I think some arguably more successful shows have failed to have the same kind of legacy that anyone can whistle has had. And it all sort of is by accident. Like I think, again, without going too far into it uh, and saving it for the end, I think a lot of what ended up lasting with anyone can whistle is stuff that Lawrence and Sondheim never really thought would be the things that last. Like, I think they were hoping that uh, the style of the show and the and the subject matter. Lawrence was always really big as the more I'm reading about all the shows that he worked on with Sondheim, it was always about like the subject matter. That was like mm -hmm. the groundbreaking mm -hmm. thing. And like, that's kind of the thing that ages uh, the most, not necessarily poorly or well, just become, that's the thing that becomes the most timely. Uh, it's more about the structure and presentation that tends to become timeless. Yeah. Uh, something I was saying when we were talking about West Side Story is like the subject matter of like gang wars is the thing that sort of creaks the most about West Side Story now. It's really the integration of everything so seamlessly and so theatrically that holds up in such a beautiful way that makes it exist sort of outside of itself and outside of any kind of era. Uh, and when you read anything that Arthur Lawrence writes about his stuff, it's always like, well, yeah, no, the music's gorgeous, but it's really just, you know, it's the book and the subject matter. I'm like, of course, it's the thing you brought to it, Arthur, that like was the thing. And I I mean, I could go on about Arthur Lawrence for a while, not ter <laughs> not terribly positively, if I'm being perfectly honest. Um, but I think that's because the first five of the Sondheim shows I'm covering are Lawrence shows. And yeah. it's up and down with him. Like, there are so many things he contributes that are great. Um, and then other things that are frustrating because you get towards the end of his career where he kind of works really hard to undermine the contributions 
of all of his collaborators because he's the one that sort of like outlived most of them except for Sondheim. And he's like, well, I'm alive and I'm going to like, I'm going to start the narrative that I'm the reason that everything is successful. Um, So I wonder what he thought of the Encores production because they cut a lot of his book. Yeah, I, I don't know if he ever went on the record with that. I think the other one of the interesting Lawrence footnotes of this also is that he had just come off of directing uh, I Can Get It For You Wholesale when he mm-hmm. did Anyone Can Whistle. Oh, no, go ahead. I think I know where you're going with this. Is this about <laughs> who he wanted for Faye Apple? Yes, exactly. Yes, girl. So, okay. Um, so, no, you know, let's, let's, okay. So let's get into, let's get into the, um, the backstory into how sure. we get to Anyone Can Whistle. So Sondheim was sort of, in a weird spot because he much like we're how we're recording this podcast his broadway score career is all over the place like the first thing he writes is actually saturday night which doesn't come to new york city until the year 2000 right but and then uh does west side story where he does just does just lyrics and then is able to get forum forum takes too long to get to broadway and Forum the what he writes for forum is what gets in the job for gypsy we would all know merman wouldn't do a new uh, composer after Happy Hunting. So Julie Stein comes in. So it's Sondheim's second score as a lyricist. Yes, we all know that about Happy Hunting. <laughs> we all know that about Happy Hunting. Uh, what we also know is that Patti Lapone has Ethel Merman's jewels from Happy Hunting. I love it. Yes. Yeah. You know, I'm sure you know that story, right? I yeah. Did, okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of my favorite stories of the Patty because it's her just justifying stealing shit. <laughs> she's, she's, the customer's like, oh, you're going to be wearing these jewels for the charity event. I'm telling the listeners, not Jen, because Jen, of course, knows this. And she's like, oh, by the way, these belong to Ethel Merman and Happy Hunting. And Patty's like, well, I'm taking these with me when I leave. Her justification being no one else is going to care about the history. I'm like, Patty, you're you're a swiper. Just say it. Swiper always swiping. <laughs> I love that. As a fellow swiper, I really admire that. <laughs> um, but so he goes into Forum, which is his third show, arguably his biggest Broadway hit. Uh, but he kind of gets dismissed by the critics the best he kind of gets from critics is like half the score is fine the rest is kind of whatever it's the book that works and he actually goes into real big depression because forms this huge shade where he gets no recognition and he has what he already feared was oh who's this lyricist thinking he can compose when he's like i actually started as composer and fell into lyric writing with all this other stuff uh so anyone can whistle was sort of his like big bold departure like i need to prove that i can compose and Arthur Lawrence was like, I want to write an, like in a totally original musical. I'm done with these adaptations. By the way, as you said, like he just come off of directing I Can Get It For You Wholesale, which like, while not a huge hit, did run for almost a year. So he like has, they both are kind of standing on good ground with Anyone Can Whistle. I'm not entirely sure what launched the idea for it. Do you know what launched the idea? I feel like I remember it being Lawrence's idea to, I, I'm not positive. We'll have to look that up. Yeah. Well, so it's the, it's 1960s. Uh, Whistle's being written in 63 or no. Uh, I guess they started writing it in 61 or 62 because it took them like a solid year to get all the money for it. Yeah. It was announced in 61 and there was like, all, there were all those title changes of like the natives are restless. And then it was called sideshow and that yep. started in 61. I love that it was called Sideshow at one point. Cause I'm like, thank God it wasn't called sideshow. Cause then who knows what sideshow would be named. Thank God Twigs wasn't called a chorus line. Yeah, this kind of thing always makes me laugh. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, yes. So it was announced in 61. So I guess they probably started writing it in 60, like pretty soon after Gypsy. So like he's writing for him. And then in the interim, while forum's being refined, he writes Gypsy. Gypsy comes out. 
he starts writing anyone can whistle while they're raising money for anyone can whistle forum comes out um and then finally with anyone can whistle like puts everything that he has into it does 33 backers auditions they finally raise all the money with arthur lawrence directing there were two big casting ideas that arthur lawrence had for this show one uh came through which was angela lansbury as cora uh, hoover hooper the mayoress mm-hmm. which is an interesting casting idea because she was not really a musical theater person at the time she didn't even think she was a musical theater person at the time and she had kind of been going through a career resurgence with the manchurian candidate and was sort of typecast for a long time as mothers and like villainesses so um it's we'll get to this when we get to more about the score it's interesting that she said yes to this project because i from what i understand it was just a letter arthur lawrence wrote to her that convinced her because then they get to rehearsal and she's like all the problems she has with the role sometimes like you knew this when you read the script why did you say yes um uh as i don't right, we'll get into that um the other one is arthur lawrence for the role of faye apple the nurse the protagonist he wanted barbara streisand and it was going to be faye cohen and according to sometimes she turned it down saying it's a bad role and a bad musical and, <laughs> and it was between this and Funny Girl, and she mm-hmm. chose Funny Girl. So they finally get into rehearsals. Lee Remick ends up being Faye Apple, and they go, oh, and Henry, how do you say his last name? Gardino? Guardino? Gardino, I think, yeah. Gardino. Uh, he plays Hapgood. They go out of town in Philadelphia. The reviews are absolutely disastrous. And yes, I actually have the name of the actor who died. Um, hold on. I have it, I have it, I have it. Henry Lasco. Henry Lasco, yeah. Yes, he was playing Shub. And he was apparently Gabriel Dell. Yes. And he was uh, getting a really good audience reaction because he was a big theater pro and Angela Lansbury just wasn't giving what they wanted. And then when he died, it turned out that like he was quote unquote coaching Angela Lansbury (laughs) off stage when she, cause she had only done two plays. She'd never done a musical and she was going to uh, Henry being like, how do I do this? And he's like, Oh, here's what you do actually undermining her so he could get the laughs and then when he got replaced with a uh, less confident understudy Angela was able to like step up to the plate and then knocked it out of the park isn't there's a great story about doesn't someone in the front row and the out of town boo and Harry Gordino gives them a middle finger like on yep. stage in 1964 Absolutely. just yeah. wow <laughs> it's also interesting this show the original cast of this show also they were looking to replace Angela Lansbury out of town because she was bombing so hard and they were going to bring in Nancy Walker for the mayoress and then when henry lasco died and angela's like it's my turn they're like oh we don't need nancy besides nancy walker was like i don't want to do this anyway it's also just fascinating you know angela lansbury is such a beloved and like you know revered member of our theater community it's so funny and interesting to think of her as someone at that age during an out-of-town tryout having these contentious conversations with people and like you know there's a story she tells about like screaming at Sondheim like I just don't know what you want me to do and she Mm -hmm. talking about how like difficult it was to develop the character with how Lawrence had her on a leash of like it's just an evil character like so many things where you're like oh like Angela Lansbury is just a person trying to make a new musical work you know it Mm -hmm. really puts that in perspective when you read stories about anyone can whistle yeah, she says it's the only time she had ever screamed at Stephen Sondheim to this day, because uh, she's like, she's like, I'm not really a screamer, but right. I was. So, she was like, I was just so petrified about failing in this show. Uh, you know, Manchurian Candidate didn't really like give her the boost that she wanted. Like, it got her an Oscar nomination, got her name back out in the press, but it didn't like offer her lead roles. So she was always trying to like find the new thing, and she couldn't make sense of the show. She didn't like what Arthur Lawrence was having her do. 
So she she kind of snapped. And and Sondheim is famously a sort of fence sitter. He really he's a pacifier. He really doesn't a pacifist. He really pacifier. He's a pacifier. He's a little baby. <laughs> he's a pacifist, and he really doesn't like to blow up in rehearsal. Like if he does blow up, it's because it's been bottling inside of him for so long. He really tries to avoid conflict. And so he kept on being like, I don't, I don't, maybe this, Angela. And she's like, what do you want? <laughs> and she felt that he was favoring Lee Remick. There was also like a line drawn in the sand because Lawrence didn't really want Lee Remick and Sondheim did. And Angela Lansbury was like Arthur Lawrence pick. So he like made Angela Lansbury his favorite and Sondheim kind of picked Remick. And so there was also clashing there. And at some point, doesn't sound like they give her an additional number. Um, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. We'll oh, sorry. That. Sorry. Going out of order. Because, well, well, yeah. So normally what I've done is I sort of go through the show beat by beat with all the songs. I don't think we're going to do that with this one. I think we're just sort of give a general concept of what the show's about and the main characters. And then we'll sort of do a free fall. Um, but yeah, that we'll get to that with with her big song because uh, it is a fun story and one of the only times where Angela Lansbury is like a diva, but it's very subtle diva. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They open out of town. It's bombing. They don't really do much changes. Another thing that was interesting is that uh, David Merrick wanted to produce Anyone Can Whistle. He was like, "I'll totally produce this. I'll get you the funding. I don't want Arthur Lawrence directing it though." He's like, you need someone from an outside perspective. He's like, this show is so bonkers. And in fact, everyone who got the script and even the ones who got the script and said yes, were like, this show is bonkers, <laughs> but I'll do it. And Merrick was like, it's totally bonkers, but we'll, we'll do it. You need an outside director to make sense of it. And they, in their mentality, are like, no, we got this. We're talented. We're smart. We'll figure it out. And in, you're right. In Finishing the Hat, Sondheim does sort of talk about the like birth of the auteur and how he doesn't really believe in writers directing their own stuff that much he said he says the only person that he thinks that has worked for consistently is James Lapine and I read that and I said that is Howard Ashman erasure right there (laughs) how dare you yeah they come to New York it basically bombs they cast these three people who aren't musical actors and watch them sort of like have these limitations in the show their leading man doesn't really know how to sing eight times a week lee remick isn't really much of a singer so like she can't sell there won't be trumpets so they cut it and angela lansbury i mean while she's great on the album you listen and you're like if they ran one more week she would have lost her voice like there's there's a scratch there where you're like oh she's got four hours left in her yeah i mean the performances on the album are tremendous i think especially angela lansbury's um Mm -hmm. but you do get the sense that perhaps this couldn't have happened eight times a week and definitely at the majestic um when i listen to it though i'm like oh it's no wonder that they thought this woman could play mame after listening to this because like Mm -hmm. angela on that cast recording is outrageous she's so good oh yeah she's given it her all i i'm even surprised with the vocal abilities of lee remick uh and it's it is ironic to me that Faye Apple is usually cast now with such like singers like mm-hmm. Audra and Sutton and Bernadette Button. Peters and Lee Remick originated it. It's, I don't know, it's I'm trying to think. It's like having Laurie Metcalf originate a role that then goes off to like opera singers. You know, it's that kind of. Well, there was a lot of casting in Sondheim's musicals. And, you know, when you look at Anyone Can Whistle and Company to a degree and Follies to a degree where it was just a different kind of casting. Like you cast a singing actor and they weren't perfect singers in that way. It was like Mm -hmm. a different kind of time. Oh, no, absolutely. And I love that. It's what I think makes a lot of his original cast so iconic and untouchable is they really went for personalities and Mm -hmm. actors. Yeah. Who could, you know, carry a tune, but what did 
is more is that like when they're singing they're singing with everything they have because they can't like rely on this beautiful instrument they have to really kind of put everything into it including their personality and sell it as best they can uh which is i i'm not trying to like throw shade to people who are really amazing singers because amazing singers are also amazing but it's a different kind of performance you know a hundred percent. And it's not, yeah. I mean, look, I think as the indicator, like the encore cast of this was perfect. Like I, oh, yeah. I had trouble even thinking about, and I know we'll get to a dream casting. Cause I was like, that cast was perfect. There's just a different kind of Broadway actor these days. Like we mm-hmm. don't have people that, Oh, let's cast that person because they will just be exactly like, you know, this character and they're just a personality. Um, today people have to be singer, actor, dancer, you know, social media, personality, talk show mm-hmm. host, like all the things. So it just, there's, it d- exists in a different way. Yeah. Well, also, I think because with the, with the birth of the internet and social media, you have not only do you have to be, you know, this polished person, you have to be so consistent. Like, I'm sure like if let's say anyone can whistle did run for like a full year and Angela Lansbury was in every single performance of that year, she probably would have like a couple of bum performances as you do. And especially when you're not a musical theater performer, like that's not how you're trained in 1964. Like who's going to know, you know, it's you go see the show, you leave. Now it's, you know, 30 of your performances from the year you did a show are all on YouTube comparing which ones are the better ones. Oh, we went today. It was our 90th time seeing the show and she cracked here, here and here and getting compared to all of your understudies and your replacements. It's just, it's a lot. So you have to kind of find a way to give a similar quality performance every time and not kill yourself. So I don't blame performers that much. There's a, I, and I don't, really, I don't even like to use the word blame, but like I would say, in terms of um, responsibility of this, twenty percent of it is actors, forty percent is how the shows are written now, where it's like, oh yes, the ceiling of your register, the entire show, yeah, while while cooter slamming and crying your eyes out, and then on, and then on top of all of that is the social media presence. Anyone can whistle. <laughs> yeah, so it opens at the Majestic Theater. Uh, what's the date that it opens on? It's um. April, eight, uh, April, no, April 4th. It's April 4th, 1964. And I mm. know this because in my research, I discovered that um, uh, High Spirits ex- opened like four days later, which got, oh, wow. a, which got a really great review in the New York Times and New York, the uh, How, uh, Taubman and the Times trashed Anyone Can Whistle. Yes. Uh, it's always so- crazy when you're like, oh yeah, High Spirits was nominated for Best Musical and Anyone Can Whistle wasn't. And like today, who knows High Spirits, you know, just only- it, It's not people. real. It's not real. Yeah. But I have a lot of feelings about High Spirits actually in general. <laughs> um, reviews were like insanely divided. Yes. There was, uh, I have the World Telegram and Sun, Norman Nadel, uh, who I think didn't even like the forum score. This time he's like, this show is so original, even if it, not all of it works, like go, go see it. It's so ingenious. Walter Kerr called it an exasperating musical comedy. It isn't very musical and it isn't very comical. Very Walter Kerr, very Walter Kerr. Yes. I don't think Kerr ever liked a Sondheim score in his lifetime. He famously didn't. There might be some weird exception, but no, he was not a fan. Yeah. He might've enjoyed night music i'll i'll figure that one out when i come to it but for anyone who's like oh clive barnes was the biggest like anti-sontime person like actually from night music on clive barnes is really on the sign time train like he's one of the few critics that loved sweeney todd so i know we like give him a lot of shit but i was like he kind of he's also the only critic when evita came out that's like patty lapone's better than elaine page and i'm like someone said it anywho (laughs) 
Jen's like, I will not go on record as yes or no. <laughs> uh, Richard Watson, the post says, an unfortunate letdown of an evening. Whitney Bolton says, not perfect, but a bright first step towards a more enlightened and cerebral musical theater. Howard Taubman in the Times says, it has no imagination or wit. And say what you will, but anyone can whistle. It's got imagination up the wazoo. Is it? He says something where he's like, um, it's okay to say something in a musical as long as it's not devoid of imagination and wit. Or did I make that up? There's some terrible, and it again, like this just all I feel like got infused into Merrily in some way, which is yeah. my favorite musical of all time. So I keep thinking about it when I reference anyone can whistle with it. But it's like, I think that, like, I mean, and I know this is coming next, but like Sondheim and Arthur Lawrence taking out an ad in the New York Times and being like, here are all the other musicals that got mixed reviews, and here's why you should come see anyone can whistle. So like there's so much in the energy of this that is very Frank and Charlie and is very merrily. Yeah, it is. It is very merrily in this respect. I think he does. I think he says like merrily and Sunday are probably his most personal shows. Not that he is George, but rather right. that like Sunday is a lot about the creative process, which is very personal. And merrily, he said is his most autobiographical show because it's very much inspired by his times with. Arthur Lawrence and Mary Rogers and sort of them trying to get around. Yeah. I think specifically because um, the, and the opening doors sequence in Merrily, he said is like very autobiographical for the reasons that you said. Yeah. And some of the like Joe Josephson stuff very specifically mm-hmm. happened to him. Um, that's kind of around the age he was during this. And in fact, when I was researching anyone can whistle, I was like, Oh, there are these fantastic kind of fun press photos of Sondheim and Lawrence and Lee Remick and Angela Lansbury that look almost exactly like the encores Merrily photos of the cast. Like it's actually crazy. And some, had to know it like it's not a coincidence um just the way that the art direction of both photos are there's a lot of parallels what you're saying is there's someone out there who's gayer than us (laughs) that is what you're saying so let's get into the nitty-gritty with this show with the songs and the score the songs and the score the songs the story all of it how would you describe the plot of anyone can whistle as both 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 as thorough and as succinct as possible there is a town that manufactures an item that never goes bad so the town has gone bankrupt because they know no one needs that item anymore um so the mayoress of the town played by angela lansbury decides to manufacture a fake miracle a rock that water comes out of um in order to attract tourists to the town Mm -hmm. when the tourists are attracted to the town the main other thing going on in town is the cookie jar which is an insane asylum run by nurse Faye apple um and when the tourists arrive at the town this is the succinct version and it, I, i'm almost believe done. it or not um when the tourists arrive it becomes chaos in that the tourists and the cookie jar people become mixed together and it's not clear who the crazy people are and who the sane people are enter Hapgood, who pretends to divide the groups but doesn't really tell you which group is sane and which is crazy he just divides into two groups mm-hmm. we later find out he's actually there to be the 50th member of the cookie jar and he is quote-unquote crazy mm-hmm. um this all devolves into chaos and skewering of conformist society and just a questioning of the idea of what makes a person crazy versus not um and i'm gonna give that that as the succinct version of the plot. Although I will say that, as you said, not a ton happens in act two technically, but in act three, if I were to describe it, there are like 10 reversals. The show ends multiple times. Like there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of plot in act three, yeah. I think. I've what, given you the general idea. Yeah, what, what Jen just said is basically all of act. So anyone can whistle is three acts. Jen yes. basically just gave you act one and like what happens at the very end of act two. 
Um, yeah. yeah, because and it, it's yeah. So the the show with the cookie jar, uh, Sondheim likes to call it a sanator- uh, sanatorium, sanitarium, because it's for the socially pressured. It's for people who kind of like have had enough of the world and don't necessarily want to die. They just want to live carefree. And ra- so the only way to do that is rather than like be in the world is to go to the cookie jar where you're just sort of allowed to kind of live with no responsibilities and, you know, probably be a little doped up, have your life sort of scheduled out for you, which Faye Apple, the nurse who we learn is very about rules and order and science. She's a woman of science. She doesn't believe in miracles. Part of her storyline is trying to expose the miracle to everybody. And she sort of falls in love with Hapgood and figuring out like all, all the morals of, of, not exposing that he's going to be the next cookie because the thing with Hapgood is like he shows up to the town to essentially do become the 50th cookie and he gets mistaken for uh the head doctor of the cookie jar's Mm -hmm. new assistant Mm -hmm. and they with no credentials like without even saying that without even he doesn't even confirm it for them he even says like I'm not a doctor and they go oh we love false modesty and so he's like yeah and he he's a like a like a Bolshevik you know he's a revolutionary that's sort of his former life and he was just sort of tired of trying to do good all the time which is why he decided to go to the cookie jar and with mixing everyone up and dividing them in retrospect you look at it as him being like ah well and I'll fuck with these people for a minute before I before I have that and go into my slumber right it's worth mentioning it's like the reason he's considered a cookie that should go to the cookie jar is because he's like an idealist crusader and it's like the idea that in the 60s and this might be part of it was ahead of its time like the kind of thing that Sondheim and Lawrence and the anyone can whistle team are saying about conformity and about society like it does come into play with like the hippie movement and with hair and with other shows that later happened um in a way that there are some things here that we we see succeed later yeah it's Anyone Can Whistle sort of is coming out while psychiatry is getting its due because Mm -hmm. for a long time, psychoanalysis was very hushed up and frowned upon. No one really talked about it. If you got it, it's like, oh, well, there's something wrong with you. And then it becomes a sort of hip thing to talk about. Like, oh, I'm going to this fabulous uh, psychoanalyst and, and, and whatnot. And Arthur Lawrence had always been very vocal about saying therapy is very healthy, go to therapy. And Sondheim was very famous for saying like, no, I don't want to do that. I don't want anyone poking at my brain. But yeah, it's sort of, anyone can whistle is interesting in the sense that it does sort of poke fun at these rules in our society that only exist because we made them, right? Of how we act and who we are and what we do. Some of which makes sense just to like maintain some order and to remind ourselves that we are people with feelings and brains, you know, uh, one of my favorite lines in community is uh, when Joel McHale says like, do you know what separates us from sharks? We celebrate shark day, um, <laughs> which this is becoming my new MO on the show is to like find some random ass quote from some pop culture thing and apply it to a Sondheim show. I love that. Yeah. It, it's not intentional. I don't like think of it in the uh, beforehand. It just sort of pops up, but yeah, the sort of idea when you think of like, how crazy is it that, you know, uh, when someone asks how you are not asking back how they are is considered rude. And it's like, well, what if you're busy? What if you're running somewhere? What if you like just had the most traumatic thing happen to you and your brain is somewhere else? No society views are like, how rude is this person? They didn't ask me how I am. Or with, we talk about social media, like you don't like your best friend's new post and 
or you don't like or you don't like their last four posts and they'll text you be like did i do something wrong are you mad at me it's like what are these rules that we've given ourselves it's yeah. crazy and there's a lot of that in anyone can whistle of like looking at the rules of society and questioning what where it comes from and who the same one is and as i said about like hair it's like you could actually look at hair as an exploration of like okay who's crazy the kids who are against vietnam or the adults who want to go to vietnam and hair is making this case for like this is the non-conformist youth culture and in a way anyone can whistle was doing that in a completely different tone and you know style of music and writing but it's like the idea that Sondheim and Lawrence were the age that they were going look like we're saying that this you know mayor is the sane one and actually based on the actions of the characters in the show who do you agree with and so it does pose those questions in a way that um, I think is meaningful yeah I think the difference between something like hair and anyone can whistle is that hair comes from a place of emotion and mm-hmm. honesty and not necessarily talking down to the audience, whereas anyone can whistle is very cerebral and very condescending in a lot of ways. I think what made the Encores version work as well as it did is that they tried to lighten up the show a bit. So it was less of a, here's how stupid you all are, and more of a, like, here's this ridiculous thing that we're all going to enjoy together. Like, totally. You're going to see. Any revival, the audience minds far less than the original being told that their way of life is unsustainable. Like it's a weird energy where you're going, technically I'm not being told this. The audience in 1964 was being told this. So I'm not as offended. Like there's a weird mental break. I think that happens there. Um, But yeah, Yeah, there's a distance. Yes, totally. Totally. I think also what's interesting about all that is Sondheim in the score of anyone can whistle, you know, there are so many songs that are very like lush and romantic and like, you know, whistle little to be sure of and the title song. And, you know, there's all these moments in the show that if you were to be in 1964, take them out of context, put them on the radio, you'd be like, Oh my God, this beautiful song, which is something that he also um, does in later music. You know, it's the send in the clowns moment. It's the, there are other moments in later Sondheim musicals that we know better that do this where I think, he, I don't think he was doing it to, you know, quote unquote, give the audience what they want. I think he genuinely thought like this part of the story is romantic and calls for this kind of song. But it is interesting to see that split of the score between, um, you know, these like 13 minute musical sequences about crazy people and then this like lush romantic Sondheim number. I am so glad you said this because <laughs> it was on my mind too. All of the Faye Apple stuff is the stuff that has lasted outside of the show on its own and have become like musical theater standards, like the title song, anyone can whistle, there won't be trumpets. Um, and then with so little to be sure of, and then Hap Goods, everybody says don't as well. Yeah. All of the Cora Hoover stuff is the stuff that no one really sings out of context. You have to, and it, cause it doesn't really work out of context. It only works in context of the show. Right. And I don't, and as you said, I don't think it was Sondheim's intention to go, oh, I'm going to write a bunch of pop hits, but he says Whistle was the first time he decided to work on pastiche as a form of character expression Mm -hmm. of this character sings in this style, this character sings in this style. And I think because while Faye is emotionally closed off she is the most traditional human being on the stage and Hapgood actually is probably the one character who is the most in tune to his emotions which is why his big song works so well out of context and why Faye Apple songs work so well so well out of context because we can relate to them whereas Cora is such a caricature and everything she says and does is in relation to the story and how everyone else is perceiving her that you can't really do parade in town outside of the show. I mean, you could, it won't work as well. Right. Yeah. And it's also worth mentioning in all of that, that like, 
they're also poking fun at conventional musical theater in itself by the way that they're shaping the material. Like the fact that when they're saying like, look at this evil mayoress or look at this, like, um, you know, cynical moment, it's shaped around like, Hey, it's a conventional musical theater nightclub number. There's something about that that I think also, whether they knew it or not was angering the audience being Mm -hmm. told that like, not only are the, Hey audience, like you're crazy, but also like the kind of conventional musical theater material that you like is what we're sort of making fun of even though they weren't it's not as simple as that you know they were celebrating it and Sondheim was using it to articulate the like emotions of the characters but at the same time um I think that was somewhat offensive to the audience yeah I I don't think that Sondheim was making fun of that genre I think he was just using the genre in a new way which no one really knew what to make of because basically like there was either you were spoofing something or you were doing something earnestly and there was no real right. like in between. Right. Totally. And I think he was trying to find the in between. And I think for some of the stuff he totally does in it's remarkable that he does do it when no one else was really doing it. And I don't think he really knew what he was doing. Like, I think he knew what he wanted. He wasn't really sure how to do it. So the fact that he accomplished it as well as he did is quite remarkable. Yes. Um, I think it's, yeah, I guess what I kind of mean is like the audience taking pastiche wrong, which like, I think some audiences even did as late as Follies um, in, you know, again, like you're totally right. Sondheim was not making fun of or diminishing material. He was using it to like add another layer to the storytelling, but audiences might not have been ready for that. Exactly. The song we both brought up earlier and I want to get into it because it's, this is the very first song in the show. Me and My Town is the song that introduces Mayoress Cora Hoover Hooper, who this song and all of her music, Sondheim has said, was meant to be in the style of Kay Thompson, Mm -hmm. who was a nightclub singer, but most famous as a musical arranger and vocal coach in Hollywood. She was uh, Liza Minnelli's godmother, best friend of Judy Garland. She did all the vocal arrangements for Meet Me in St. Louis, I'm pretty sure. Uh, My favorite thing about her, she also wrote Eloise, so we have her to thank for that. My favorite thing she ever did is her performance in Funny Face. She is amazing in that movie. If you ever want to know who Kay Thompson is, look up Think Pink, Funny Face on YouTube, or Mm -hmm. the beatnik number she does with Fred Astaire or How to Be Lovely with Audrey Hepburn. She just is so fantastic. And that is the energy that we're getting for this mayoress, which is, again, like a very original concept to take this truly heinous person and present her in such a seductive way, like to take a style of music that the audience loves and apply it to a character that they should hate. Me and my town battered about. Everyone in it would like to get out. Me and my town, we just wanna be loved. Stores are for rent, theaters are dark. Grass on the sidewalks, but not in the park. Me and my town, we just wanna be loved. And they didn't know that. I don't think that audience knew that they were supposed to love to hate her. Mm-hmm. Um, they were. They were like, "Well, she's the villain, so why is she getting these amazing numbers? Like, I don't like this." Uh, because anti-heroes were really mostly a thing with men. And mm-hmm. I argued with the gypsy one. Gypsy Rose is probably the first female anti-hero in a musical. Uh, and Cora is not an anti-hero. Cora is truly a villain, but she's like the kind of lovable, lovable, lovable villain that we either see 
at this time with 101 Dalmatians or when 101 Dalmatians eventually comes out. I don't remember what year that movie came out. I know it's the 60s though. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think um, Me and My Town, I think is my favorite song in this whole show. And when we talk about like favorite lyrics or rhymes, I think all of mine are in Me and My Town. Like, I think this number, I can imagine Sondheim writing it and being like, yeah, this is a great, this will really grab them. And this is like a, you know, conventional enough opening that people will start out with something that they're surprised when we deviate more from it, even though it is, as you said, like a villain singing it. There's so much in this number that is just like, kind of classic 60s traditional but on top of that you're getting these like delicious original Sondheim rhymes so I just love this song and it's arranged so well she has four boys who back her up uh hey there Cora what's What's new new? bank went bust and I'm feeling blue and who took over the bankruptcy me boys me cc me boys me The reservoir. And what's the state of the water supply? Dry boys, dry. My mind. Dry boys, dry. My favorite lyric in this, actually, and it's not even the most, uh, I want to say, all the lyrics in this are amazing, but it's one that I don't think most people would would mention because it's repeated so much, which is she's unpopular with the populace. Love that. Because it they they repeat the line like, 12 times <laughs> yeah. he's unpopular with the populists unpopular and it's both a really good wordplay but I don't think Sondheim doesn't repeat it over and over because he's like I'm so proud of this wordplay it's an opportunity for whoever's playing Cora to do something funky with it mm-hmm. which is something he learned with West Side Story and Forum with Jerome Robbins of like uh give your actors something to do when you're writing a song the story I talk about with Maria where Jerome Robbins is like, I don't know how to stage this. There's nothing happening in the song. And then with Forum, when he's doing comedy tonight and Jerome Robbins is like, don't write jokes. I will make the jokes with the staging. And sometimes like, I, like he's like, the line is clever. People like the line. It's not so clever that 12 times they're going to like bust a gut, but it provides who's doing the number opportunities to do something. And when you watch the video with Donna Murphy doing it at Encores, that's exactly what happens. She's doing like her little... Only way I can describe it back to Kay Thompson, it's Kay Thompson doing Funny Face, the beatnik number where she's, you know, she's doing Fosse, uh, Fosse dances, um, Jack Cole, like, movements. And it it's so good. Ah, I love it. Yeah. It's a great opening number. I think, as you said, it's not a song that, like, grabs a mainstream audience necessarily because it's so, if you are, if you're new to the show, you're like, what? But you can't deny that it's fascinating. It's what makes, it's what pisses me off when Taubin's like, there's no imagination or wit. And like, listen, say what you want about Whistle. Some, some of it doesn't make sense. Some of it's ridiculous. And like, yes, it's very uneven. Imagination for days. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Uh, the Miracle Song. I want to poke your brain about this. This is something that I was thinking about. And I know that the show had only come out like maybe six months before this show came out. And it was, and this song was probably written before this show had come out, but this song, the Miracle Song, reminds me very much of 110 in the Shade. Mm. In fact, this whole show kind of gives me Schmidt and Jones vibes. It gives me a lot of like, if Fantastics hadn't come out, would the sound of anyone can whistle be this? 
Interesting. Yeah, I've never honestly heard either team comment on the other thing. But I think at the time, you know, we forget that there's that third element where like if in the industry or in New York City or in these communities, people were talking a certain way about a certain topic or like, you know, making music in a certain way, it made sense that two shows could come out at the same time that would both employ similar techniques. Um, I don't know that they either of them kind of picked that from the other one. I think it was just a result of the conversations happening at the time. No, absolutely. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't mean to imply that sometimes <laughs> listen to one ten in the shade and went yes, but it's interesting that those that that song, the miracle song, sounds so much like something from one ten in the shade. Which yeah, and I think also though it's like the miracle song employs a lot of conventional techniques in a way that like is really fun when you mm-hmm. combine it with the content, which is crazy. Like it's such a complex thing of storytelling, but at the same time, some of the compositional elements are so like, oh, this could be, you know, a Frank Lesser, you know, second act showstopper. Yeah. It, it's interesting to see those things combined. It gives you a little bit of Oklahoma vibes as well. It's, there's a little bit of Rogers and Hammerstein in there of the like, ba 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 it's yeah i i would say there's sort of for a show that is so polarizing the the score does a really good job of easing you into the mm-hmm. insanity of it all it gives you a very hot k thompson jack cole opening number so you're like oh i love this jazzy arrangement then we get into the miracle song which is very traditional musical theater but the subject matter is about how a mayoress is now conning the entire town and everyone in the country into believing in this miracle if we're being technical about it she doesn't come up with the idea her administration does that's true but but she does there's a recurring joke where she says i didn't see it i didn't hear it but do it um (laughs) which is well i will say i don't think that arthur lawrence's book is particularly funny there are very few what i would call real jokes i think that is a recurring joke that's actually very funny yeah. I didn't see it. I didn't hear it. But do it. Next up is a song that was cut from the show and wasn't even on the album when it first when the album first came out. I don't know if this song first premiered with Bernadette Peters at Carnegie Hall in that concert or if it came out before then. I feel like this was a song that wasn't really part of the Sondheim canon until much, much, much later. Yeah, you know, it was, it's on the album now, um, which makes people think that it was on the album originally, but I know it was recorded um, and then just put on later, as you said. Um, You know, I think what's most interesting really is that it's an instance of a song that got cut because a speech or like a moment in the script was considered to do the job of the song, which usually the opposite happens in theater history. Like you get a lot of dialogue or, you know, monologue being cut for a song. Um, this one is interesting because obviously like it's a song that became such a huge hit after the show. So we love There Won't Be Trumpets. We stand. But not with trumpets or lightning flashing or shining armor. He may be daring, he may be dashing, or maybe he's a farmer. We can wait. 
what's another day? He has lots of hills to climb. And a hero doesn't come till the nick of time. You know what's interesting is that the number of times that's happened in Sondheim's career where like dialogue did what the song was supposed to do, they're all Arthur Lawrence shows. Isn't that funny? <laughs> West Side Story was supposed to end with the big song for Maria and they're like the monologue suffices and he's like, oh, look at that. Anyone can whistle, same thing. I'm sure there are plenty of opportunities with Gypsy where it's sort of the same thing. I know there are a lot of times where they would cut songs because they're like, it's superfluous, the scene works without it. And it's like, interesting. They're all Arthur yeah. Lawrence shows. Yeah. I think we can all say though, like, it's so exciting to hear there won't be trumpets with an orchestra. It's one of those songs where like, it's a great song in itself, but I love hearing this song in like a concert version where you get to hear, um, you know, the full orchestration. It's a great orchestration. I think that the song does work after the monologue. It can be a wonderful extension of the monologue. The difference is that Lee Remick was such an actress and was, again, as I said before, had a surprisingly strong voice considering they talk about how she like wasn't a singer. Um, And on the recording, I think she does a pretty good job with trumpets uh but the song really does land when someone like Sutton Foster follows the monologue with it who can just knock it out of the park if we went to encores and Sutton Foster did not sing there won't be trumpets I would have protested (laughs) oh we all would have protested I remember also there were people at the time saying like oh my god they have to include there's always a woman and we'll get to there's always a woman uh because it's not in the show it was cut from the show and honestly for good reason and because I've never seen that song. I've never seen. I've never seen. No, I said it correctly. I've never seen that song. It's a weird sentence. I've never seen that song work with the show. I've seen it work in concert formats. Ironically, I think the best version of that song is the putting it together with Carol Burnett and Ruthie Henshaw, where they actually change a lot of the lyrics for it. But I think because where it comes in the show, it's so towards the end in the middle of all this stuff that it just it does you're like why you're we've it's like i think it happens either right before the cookie chase or in the middle of the cookie chase and it's like imagine stopping forum imagine stopping the chase sequence in forum to sing impossible with hero and senex like it's that's something you just don't do right it doesn't it, it doesn't quite work no matter what within the context of the show but it is a great song yeah uh yeah there won't be trumpets the song has had a life why why do you think that is yeah, no, I mean, it's a tremendous number. Everything about it from the, you know, words to the music to the orchestration, um, even the original performance, I think, you know, the song definitely gets across, even though we've since Lee Remick seen some, like, as you said, singers really nail it. Um, it's just a, it's a great song. It's a showstopper. And I think the idea behind it is complex in a way that stands with Sondheim's career. And yet it functions as just like a legitimate, like nail them to the rafters showstopper. I also... I think the song needs to be in the show because it really is the beginning of Faye's emotional journey because she, the song is basically, she's saying it's, it's a, it's the Sondheim equivalent of holding out for a hero, yeah. right? You know, she says, we need or a, a hero. quiet thing. <laughs> or a qui- it, you know what? It's if a quiet thing and holding out for a hero had a baby, it's there won't be trumpets <laughs> because she says, you know, a hero is going to come. It's just, the only thing is that it's not going to look like how you think it's going to look like. There won't be trumpets and there won't, and there will be no thunder clapping. It's not going to be this big dramatic thing. She goes, but we're going to wait for him because he's going to show up and he's going to save us all. Mm-hmm. And that's necessary because that's what sort of keeps her tied to Hapgood throughout the show of like why she's insistent that he 
continue. He doesn't go to the cookie jar. Why she will destroy destroy his file. Why she doesn't expose him. Without the song, you're sort of like, why are you letting this man run the table with you? Mm-hmm. Uh, and what I will say, the thing about Animal Kingdom I love so much is it's sort of the antithesis of Forum in the sense that Forum is where the men kind of run the show and the women are sort of afterthoughts and whistle the women run the show and the men are sort of afterthoughts. Totally. What, what both shows actually have in common is that both shows are keenly aware that they are musicals. Like the characters are, are aware that they are in a musical because yes. they make references to like vamping and introductory music and the dance and the verse and all this other stuff. And I'm like, it's, um, did you ever watch uh, Rick and Morty or or Archer. Did you ever watch Archer? I'm familiar, but I'm not like a okay. watcher. Rick and Morty, I, it's a hard show to recommend because it's you You really have to just give it a lot of time to like it. But the main character you realize by like season two, because he will make these jokes where you're like, that just seems so random. You go, what is that? And then you realize by the middle of season two, the character of Rick knows that he's in a cartoon animated series. Mm-hmm. Cause he's like, he'll make, he'll say random things. I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, oh, it's my new catchphrase. That's always been my catchphrase. And you're like, what? And then every now and then he'll like look at the camera and you go, he's trying to make catchphrases happen for the audience. He's trying to sell merchandise. Rick knows that he's in a cartoon <laughs> and anyone can whistle has a lot of that where they don't ever look out to the audience, except for Hapgood that one time where he says, you're all insane or you're all mad, but the rest of the characters know they're in a musical. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting. Well, I think it's partially Sondheim and his collaborators being aware of that split in American society that's now been very well documented when it comes to the musical theater of like, you know, it was in the 60s that the split between real popular music and musical theater songs really started to happen. And, um, you know, just the idea that the audience might be cynical about the fact that like musical comedy was what they were watching um, and trying to play into that rather than against it by commenting on it, I think was something that started to happen more. Yeah. Broadway is going through a shift in the 60s that it kind of begins weirdly enough with anyone can whistle, whether anyone was aware of it or not. And yeah, audiences, I think, were hostile because they liked the Hello Dollies and the funny girls of the season that, you know, were very much what they knew and what they loved. Dollies is a very optimistic show based off of a famous play with songs they could hum and big sets and dancing. And I do really like Dolly. I'm not trying to be negative towards it. I think it's a wonderful show, but it is a show of very specific older era that's very palatable. And Whistle, for all of its faults, was trying to explore new territory and in a way that a lot of audiences were not into. Because they're like, no, we like what we like. Why must we change things? Mm -hmm. And it's interesting to sort of see how the, how the decade progresses in that way. Um, yeah. Next up we have what I think is probably the show's biggest legacy art artistically. And we'll talk about that why in, this, in the last part of the episode, but it's a very long sequence called simple where mm-hmm. Hapgood comes in, onto the stage, ironically with trumpets and a thunderclap. And he's uh, mistaken for, for an analyst, a specialist and is, you know, all the cookies and the normal people, quote unquote, normal people are mixed up, help us divide. So he goes through this whole musical sequence where he goes through each person and has and interviews them, asks them for what is called a watch cry, which is like, what's your mantra for life that gets you through the day? And as you said earlier, divides them, but doesn't say who's in what. And his whole MO is like basically just fucking with them all of never answering questions. Every time someone tries to confront him, he brings up a new thing. Right. And- I would say the funny, the absolute funniest line in the whole show, or at least I should say the line that always kills no matter is when someone says, what is this? And Cora says, 
I don't know, but it's brilliant. <laughs> That's very meta. It's interesting that Whistle pokes fun at that because that becomes a major trend in the 60s that I think was just sort of starting at that time. You can read about it in the season with a lot of British dramatic imports like Rosencrantz and Guildenstart are dead where audiences don't really get it but it's the thing to see so they're like oh I don't get it but it's brilliant um there's a very famous line and I say famous in the sense of like anyone who's read the season knows this part it's when he's talking about Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead and which if you have oh sorry I'm getting ahead of myself if you don't know what the season is the season is a book by William Goldman who wrote The Princess Bride and his brother was James Golden, I believe, who wrote the book for Follies. And it's and it's a chronicle of the 1967-1968 Broadway season, which was a bad season for Broadway. Uh, pretty decent for plays, bad for musicals. And you go and he goes through all the big shows and some of the big flops and talks about sort of where Broadway was at at the beginning of the season, where it's at at the end. Uh, he has a line at the beginning where he talks about how like Barbara anyone who's who saw Barbara Streisand at the beginning of Funny Girl and is seeing her a year and a half later knows that she's hamming it up like Groucho Marx uh like he is vicious in the sense that he's not he's not being he is being mean but he's not being mean to like be rude he's being mean to be like to to pull the curtain away from the uh niceties of Broadway it's like I'm saying what no one else is willing to say yeah it's also as a book it like examines the ecosystem of Broadway in looking at it as a season in a way that had never quite been done before because mm-hmm. we think of the Tony Awards now as being what they are now but it didn't there wasn't so much importance placed on them back then in the way that would make things as a season um be looked at as that like it, it just the season did something that nothing had ever done before to chronicle theater history yes well it did what you and I were doing with this which was you know talking about trends and and what things are working what things aren't wh- what's happening off Broadway uh the people and he talks about the artists to watch and the he talks about how like Hal Prince is a very good director because Cabaret had come out the season before he's like he's a very good director but we really really need him as a producer uh, but he talks about with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, which is the big, big British import hit. Uh, after the show, a husband and wife are walking up the aisle and the husband says to the wife, I didn't get any of that. And she says, don't you dare say that to anyone we know. <laughs> and that's sort of, and that's sort of what that line with Cora lampoons of the, I don't know, but it's brilliant. Right. Uh, nobody, nobody wants to admit that they don't understand something. They will say, oh, it's bad or it's stupid rather than admit like I don't get it and that's like because you can find something to be not good if you get it if you don't get it don't say oh I don't get it because it's bad it's like no figure out what the person's trying to do if you don't think that they succeeded afterwards that's fine but there's nothing wrong with saying you don't get something no one understands everything yeah and it's worth saying in reference to like producing and in reference to the nine performances of anyone can whistle that um you know i think there's a misconception that a show's length of its run is directly related to how misunderstood it was or how bad the reviews were and there's so many factors as we know that go into it but with anyone can whistle the show was capitalized um at a level where they just didn't have any room to run. Um, and it's, you know, what if, but like if it had been Hal Prince or if Kermit Bloomgarden had raised more money 
or if so many things, but um, I'm not saying anyone can whistle would have become a hit, but the nine performances were definitely because the show got the reviews it got, and then just didn't have um, enough money to say, Hey, should we fix some things? Should we invest in advertising? Should we do this? Should we do that in a way that happened a lot more frequently in the sixties than it does now where um, there's this sense that even if a show doesn't, you know, become a hit, it's got value to run for a little while. So it can, you know, have licensing and all those things. And in those days there wasn't that same planning. Like if it got the bad reviews and it wasn't going to turn into a hit, it would close more quickly. Um, so the capitalization was treated in a different way. Absolutely. Hal Prince was really kind of a forward thinking producer in that way. Cause he did that with a lot of shows, which, which was like, you know, with forum, not closing it immediately when they got the terrible reviews, they got West side story, keeping it running, even though it wasn't necessarily a sellout at first, it actually, it famously became a sellout at the end of its run. Right. Uh, a lot of producers. Yeah. they the cap- like the capital's the capital. It's what you raise to get the show up. Who who puts uh, money in the budget to keep it running for a little bit? That's right. they're like that's the whole uh, plot line of Mel Brooks as the producer. Since they're putting more money into the show than they need, right. like, well, that money can go into keeping the show running while you build your audience. Um, yes. yeah. which you know Zero Mastel doesn't do, but still, uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Simple is a fascinating sequence. It is. 14 minutes long, which I don't think any number until that point that anyone can whistle open had ever been that long before. That's a good question. I'm not positive that's true, but it's definitely one of the first. And it's was commented on a lot when that original album came out and it was like, oh, there's only this many songs on this side. Yeah. I think the the show that comes closest is Carousel with the If I Loved You bench scene, which I think comes in at 12 minutes. But even then... There are there are two points where an audience could potentially applaud, which is at the end of when Julie sings "If I Loved You" and when Billy sings "If I Loved You." Uh, simple. There's no moment to applaud until the very end of the song, and it's also a full ensemble, or as opposed to "If I Loved You" is just two people. Totally. I I I'm willing to bet that this was the longest a musical sequence had gone in a Broadway musical up until this point. It's very possible. I think the thing that always trips me up is I'm like, you know, when we're talking about 64, it's like cast albums as we know them had only existed for a few years up until then. And we have Mm -hmm. no idea if there was some Broadway musical in 1915 that was never recorded that kind of ran for six months and people liked it and it had a 15 minute sequence and I'm going to look it up in a book. And I find this with theater history all the time and it's no one's fault, but it's like things were not documented. There were not cast albums. And so someone will go, oh, in 1961, it was the first time a character did XYZ. And then I'll discover like, no, someone did that in 1901 but that show was never recorded and was never done again and it's not even that it wasn't a hit it's just that shows were not documented back then that's fair um yeah the truth is we we don't know or like even with broadway maybe in some random theater in idaho in 1910 like some random person tried something that ran in idaho for two months (laughs) yeah the the original idaho production of course the original idaho production of i don't know of dark hum is hum. bright hum. the opposite of bright hum is hum. dumb hum. so anyone who's dark is dumb that's the rule of thumb depends where you're from simple 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 as abc this is the sequence then you listen to it and you go oh this is where sondheim's starting to become sondheim mm-hmm. like totally you- you can start to hear pieces of Sweeney and Merrily and a little night music. Like this is the precursor to weekend in the country. This is the precursor to city on fire and um, rich and happy, which 
I'm going to say right here, right now, you'll hear it on the Merrily episode. I think Rich and Happy is better than that Frank, and it should be <laughs> back in the show, if only because ba-ba-ba-da-ba-ba-ba-ba-da is iconic. <laughs> How dare they remove it? Moving on. Act one's over. That was all act one, guys. Act two, we have Play With Me, which is we learned that Faye Apple, in order to let go, has to put on a wig and a dress and pretend to be French. Yeah, Faye Apple has a lot of layers. And it's like she can only really express her emotions when she's this French woman. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting. It's another layer to anyone can whistle. Yeah, they give they do give a reason why it's the wig and the dress. But it's very, you know, like, oh, I did a show in college when I was in nursing school and I put it on. <laughs> And I and I put this on for the show and it, and I liked it, yeah. but yeah, no, it is an interesting idea of sort of having to hide behind a facade, which uh-huh. who can't relate to that, and play with yeah, me is just you know very it's a cute little song. Yet another thing that anyone can whistle is taking aim at, which is the idea of identity and disguises. Yeah. And, you know, what's the difference between a putting on a wig and putting on an accent and, you know, me putting on makeup or shaving or putting on a stylish outfit, quaffing my hair. Who's to say? Yeah. Yeah. There's, it's also, this is a moment where the show starts to play around with genre because act one is very absurdist. And now they're like making fun of French cinema. And then they're going into more traditional musical theater territory. It's, they're definitely juggling a, a lot of balls and dropping quite a few of them, I will say. Um, yeah, and you know the, well, you'll get to it, the title song. Yeah, well, well, let's get into it now. Play With Me, there's not much to talk about. It's just, it's a seduction song between Faye and Hapgood, and then she's exposed, and she tells Hapgood, like, this is how I let go, because I don't know how to let go. And she goes into the title song, Anyone Can Whistle, which is... Yeah, you know, I just think it's interesting the way that it has been talked about throughout Sondheim's career is people think that that's a personal statement from him. And he said it's not. It was him writing for the character. Um, Just because he's saying it himself at the piano during a benefit doesn't mean it's his own personal autobiographical statement. Um, But there's no arguing that it's a song that some of his collaborators and close friends see as being, um, you know, very personal to him in terms of what it's expressing. So um, it's a beautiful song. um, And Faye Apple sings it. Yeah, she does indeed sing it. It's it is a beautiful song. It's I think I mean I'm sure there's parts of him in there as there is with anything that somebody writes. Yeah, but he's like, this is not my personal statement, guys. Calm down. But I think because with whistle, when it started getting known in theater circles, people were like, people in the know were like, oh, this is like this. He's trying to tell us something. Right. I don't think he is. He's just standing for character. It's all so simple. Relax, let go, let fly So someone tell me why Can't I I can dance a tango I can read Greek easy I can slay a dragon Any old week easy Everybody says don't is after anyone can whistle, right? Uh, yeah. We have a parade in town. Okay. So yeah, this is the story that Jen was alluding to. And now we're going to fully say parade in town is Cora Hoover Hooper. Because Cora's whole like MO, and she says it to me in my town, is me and my town, we just want to be loved. Like she just wants to be popular with the populace. She <laughs> wants people to like her, which, you know, we have some politicians that are like that. When they go on Twitter and they post something for their uh, demographic or you know we had a president that all he wanted was to be popular and 
you know, so many articles have been written about like how it killed him that the people that loved him the most were people he didn't want to be the people that loved him. Um, and that's sort of the same thing with Cora. She wants to be loved. She wants to be loved by the right people, but she wants to be popular. And the parade in town is her realizing that someone else now is more popular than she is. And it's devastating her. Angela Lansbury was working really hard to like find vulnerability in Cora. Cause she was like, I don't, I'm trying to make her a human being. Arthur wants me to play her one dimensional. And sometimes like, right. The show's a cartoon we told you this before you signed your contract. Like, I don't know what we're doing here. Right. And she was like, I just, she's like, I need a song to show that, uh, that Cora is vulnerable. He's like, she's not vulnerable. That's the whole thing. She's like, and she keeps going on and on. I don't know how to approach as an actress. I just, she's like, I really think I need a song that shows Cora's vulnerability. Long pause. Besides, Faye has five songs and Cora only has four. There it is. Yeah, and you Sondheim's like, there we go. Um, I think that's so funny because then Sondheim's like, and yeah, I couldn't argue with that. Faye did have five songs and Cora had four, so I wrote that song. Yeah. Um, it's what? something that you wouldn't see him do later in his career just because he had more power and he just might have not responded that way. And so it's really funny to see a young Sondheim being like, yeah, okay, five and five. Did you hear? Did you see? Is a parade in town? Are there drums without me? Is a parade in town? Well, they're out of step. The flutes are squeaky, the banners are frayed. Any parade in town without me must be a second-class parade. You know what? This was the season of parade songs. We have Before the Parade Passes By, Don't Rain in My Parade, and that there's a parade in town. Yeah. was a parade season. I love that. Before Parade, there was 1964. Right. And then we have Everybody Says Don't, which is covered by Barbara Streisand phenomenally. Um, This is another one of those songs within the show that has gained greater popularity throughout the years. It's a great, great song. Well, it's sort of like the screw all the haters kind of song. And I think a lot of theater people like this song because it's sort of like a nice pump you up, get out of the house kind of song. And what's ironic is that it's sung by someone who's, who is trying to get himself committed to a sanitarium. (laughs) Again, an example where like, once you put it in context, same thing with anyone can whistle, like anyone can whistle is this beautiful song until you realize Lee Remick is wearing a negligee and a red bob and has just been doing a fake French accent for the last 10 minutes. Like it's, (laughs) I think, as we said earlier, all of these songs with Hapgood and uh, Faye are examples of out of context. You're like, what a beautiful song. What an amazing song. And then you're like, this is what's happening in the scene when they're singing it. And you're like, oh God. And then with Cora, you hear the song out of context. You're like, what? And then you're like, this is what's happening when Cora's singing it. And you're like, oh yeah, no, that's awesome. Totally. Isn't it interesting how that happens? Yeah, and I think it's interesting also that we both agree that the song between the two doesn't work because it's just the two worlds of the score are, are never, they're too far apart. They're not yeah. ever integrated. It's like the show exists in the two different like realms. So a score that I like to talk about that I think does what anyone can whistle is trying to do is Great Comet. Dave Malloy, I think, beautifully interweaves like, you know, old school Russian music, techno pop, 
uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber style ballads and makes it work. So you're like, oh, this is one cohesive unit. It blends really well together. You're never like, oh my God. It's like a fascinating thing that happens in musical theater, not just with genres, but sometimes you get shows where you're like, oh, all the older characters have half the score and the younger characters have the other half and they don't seem married together in, yeah, that involves genre, but it also just, there are some scores that exist in different worlds like that. Yeah. Uh, the We have I Got You to Leon, which I really don't have many thoughts on this song. It's a cute song, but I don't really think about it all that much. I want to get to see what it gets you, which is like, talk about a Sondheim song. Yeah. I also love See What It Gets You because it's a genre of musical theater song we don't talk about enough, which is the How Dare You song. Um, And I would almost put like so much better from Legally Blonde in that list. Like, it's just like, I love a How Dare You trope. Legally Blonde. Yeah, I guess it is sort of a How Dare You, but it's more of a, it's the positive spin on How Dare You. Yes, correct. It's like, how dare you underestimate me? Look what I can do. Where is this? And could I leave you? Could I leave you? Yeah. Um, you know, uh, what's another one? Franklin Shepard Ang, which are these angry, like, how dare you songs slash I'm having a breakdown song. Yes, whereas, you're right. Yes. Whereas so much better is how dare you? I'm rising from the ashes like a phoenix, honey. Yes. She's birthed. She's <laughs> pissing all over the stage. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, this is, it is very much a Sondheim song. And, and I say that in this fact that it, it's a great song as a showstopper and it's not that it's unmelodic. It's just that it's not trying to be a showstopper. It's working really hard to sort of show this character on the verge of a breakdown. One could say she's a woman on the verge of a nervous breakdown. And yes, Jen, Jen nodded because she understood the reference. Well, I was also like, there's a lot of how dare you numbers in that score. We won't even get into it. Uh, I love that score. But no, there are a lot of how dare you numbers in that score. Uh, this song, it's also a hodgepodge in a weird way because there, there's the original melody with the take one step and see what it gets you. Then it goes into anyone can whistle any old day, easy. And then the orchestration has everybody says don't because every time she holds them, it goes easy. And it's it's sort of a it's a daughter to Rose's turn of taking music that you've already heard and putting it together in a way that is cohesive where when the music comes in you know that that music's there because it's what's in her head because as she's repeating anyone can whistle to herself that everybody says don't melody is in there as a reminder of like she's she has what he says in her head and but it's like almost in a nagging way as she's getting to what she's trying to get to so ready or not here I hope I come That's what they say, easy. Anyone can whistle any old day, easy. It's all so simple. Next up is the cookie chase, I do believe. Yes? Yeah. You know, like nine minute ballet where they round up all the cookies. And, uh, you know, from what I understand on Broadway originally, it was this big tour de force for Herbert Ross. And it's what clinched him the Tony nomination. And then we go into perhaps the most beautiful, fully fledged romantic song in the show. Uh, I would argue this is probably the most romantic song Sondheim writes on his own um, that's reminiscent of West Side Story. Because mm-hmm. I say this earlier and, and I'll say it again, like most of the romantic songs Sondheim writes have like a weird edge to them mm-hmm. where they, they're almost embarrassed to be so wholehearted and like honest about their emotions because you have something like merrily where it's you know unrequited love of i love you but you'll never know you have passion which is i love you you get away from me that kind of stuff uh 
there's he doesn't ever really write a song where it's like we love each other or like we're just so into each other this is probably the closest he gets to something like tonight yeah you know what's so interesting to me about this song is again i don't think it was anyone plagiarizing anyone or anyone copying anyone but it's the most candor and ebb of sondheim's songs in the way that it reminds me of um <laughs> in and the world goes round the um medley of um i don't remember you and sometimes a day goes by mm-hmm. that kind of when I think about what's so little to be sure of it's the same style of like it's not cynical it's not bittersweet but it's like heart-wrenching love song that like really focuses on um like the lyrics equal to the music in a way that obviously you know sets those writers apart during this era I have a question for you would you say that sometimes a day goes by or not a day goes by <laughs> another medley that we should get and i don't know if we have like our parade medley we clearly need <laughs> we do need a parade medley um i think what you, this is what we're gonna do you and me when when we're allowed to have concerts we're gonna do a medley that's don't rain on my parade before the parade passes by there's a parade in town and then we ended with the old red hills of, of georgia <laughs> that's a great idea This song is just so, it is so lovely. It's so earnest. It's so beautiful. And it's also not the finale of the show. Once again, we have an Arthur Lawrence Sondheim musical that doesn't end on a song. It actually ends on a scene. Uh, Yeah. This musical does, I kind of said this earlier, like it ends like six different times. Like there are Mm -hmm. multiple times when you're like, oh, that must have been the end. And then you're like, no, they have to wrap this up. No, they have to comment on this. Um, There's, I I guess I won't say it in case people are listening and don't want spoilers in case they see anyone can whistle. But yes, there's a lot of like, um, you know, like Faye finally reveals that the miracle is fake. The town refuses to believe her. Um, There's a new miracle. Or like, like it there's just so much happening at the end of the show um to turn something on its head and then turn it on its head again and then turn it on its head again um and then it ends happily which is really interesting yeah well that, and that's what i mean when i say like the show is cynical f- until literally the last four minutes actually you know what i'm gonna be bolder than that the last 90 seconds <laughs> because with so little to be sure of while it's such a beautiful song it ends on sort of this melancholy note because they're parting it's like they're not gonna go together and then there's like six more minutes of book after that where you see that Cora and Shub like are gonna concoct a new thing and the town's gonna become successful because the whole thing's gonna be a cookie jar and there's a new Faye and she's what the old Faye was and Faye doesn't wanna be that and like nothing feels resolved. Everything just sort of feels whatever. And so she finally lets out a whistle. It's an ugly whistle, but it's a whistle. And Hapgood comes back on and he says, that'll do. Um, or like that, that's good enough. And they go off together. Um, oh, no, sorry. They kiss and then actual water spouts from the rock. Uh, mm-hmm. An actual miracle happens. So, yeah, honestly, you know, the last the last 90 seconds of the show, it's we have cynicism in the last 90 seconds of the show. It's like, but see, sometimes miracles do happen and people can find love. So let's get into the end of all of this. We've gone through the show and all that wonderful good stuff. Yeah. We we have the Tony Awards. We, it gets nominated for one. It it's choreography, which it doesn't win. It's not nominated for score. Do you know the four things that are nominated for score this year? Okay, let me try to, well, we know it's, I, I thought it was the four that are just 
the best musical nominees, but am I wrong about that? I haven't looked at it in a while. So the best musical nominees are Dolly, Funny Girl, Funny She Girl. Loves Me, and, and High, High Spirits. Spirits. Is you High Spirits weirdly? No, go ahead. I'll let you tell us. The score nominees are High Spirits, Funny Girl, Hello Dolly, and 110 in the Shade. Right. Right. Of course. How sacrilegious is that? I mean, I just love She Loves Me more than anything. Well, so what I was going to say is I controversially don't think anyone can whistle should be nominated among these four. I think High Spirit should be removed and She Loves Me should be put in. Fascinating. No, totally. Because- what a season for scores. Um, really? She Loves Me, every time I see it, it's just one of my favorite shows, but I'm always like, I feel like this is what other people must feel at like a Billy Joel concert because it's just hit after hit after hit. Um, it so it's unbelievable to think about it not being nominated for best score. I clearly blocked it out. I listened to the High Spirit score today because I was like, is this score actually a gem? And like, it's fun. It's cute. It's good music and it's nice. But it's such an old fashioned score that it's very clear that the Tony nominating committee was like drawing a line in the sand saying to like Sondheim and even She Loves Me in its own weird way of like, what you did is cute. This is the kind of stuff we want going forward. Like 110 in the Shade is about as experimental as we will take. Uh, Otherwise we want a dolly, we want a high spirit. And then that kind of, Broadway kind of retaliates after that. Yeah, totally. Which I love, but- yeah, I mean, like, because we have Funny Girl, which has all those amazing songs uh, and elevates the show in a way. Dolly, which everything is just so cohesive. 110, which is definitely the most experimental of the bunch and can definitely stay. She Loves Me. The reason why I wouldn't necessarily put Anyone Can Whistle in these four is that I think She Loves Me score is perfect and complements the show in a way, whereas Anyone Can Whistle is so against its own book. And mm-hmm. you can even, as we said also earlier, like the score kind of competes with itself sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I love it. I think if there was a fifth nominee, I would put Anyone Can Whistle in there. But if I had to do four, I think She Loves Me, 110, Funny Girl, and Hello Dolly are correct. I think that is the correct four of this yeah. year. What a year. What a year. We talked about it before, how crazy it is that this show gets a cast album because mm-hmm. I think this is this and there's one other show that had about a shorter run that did not make it into at least double digits of performances that gets yeah, recorded man on the moon <laughs> why do I even bother <laughs> well yeah no it's it is it's the first but we also as I said earlier it's like cast albums hadn't even existed for that long when uh, anyone can whistle happen they really hadn't but yes it's the second show to get a cast album when it had a less than 10 performance run on yes. Broadway Anyone Can Whistle sort of carries the trend from Candide, which is this show that doesn't do well, but then the album sort of lives on in lore. And part of that is Angela Lansbury comes back to Broadway two years later and dominates in MAME. And then four years after that, Sondheim does Company. And so the idea of Sondheim and Lansbury on an album together, that becomes sort of this covetous thing. And then people are listening to it in the age of Sondheim and going oh there's a lot of good here and you can sort of see how he's coming to these other things so between 64 and 95 in those like 30 years when they do the Carnegie Hall concert the show's reputation becomes this big cult classic where it almost becomes a rite of passage as a theater geek in the same way that Candide does where it's you aren't a true theater fan until you until you know at least three songs from the show right and Candide weirdly like had songs that became like musical theater standards due to its album and then launched a whole new revival whistle that didn't never really happen with. It was more sort of like standards on the underground. Um, right. 
Well, I think because of Sondheim's career being what it was, there were always songs from Whistle that were being put into the fabric of reviews and Sondheim celebrations and benefits. And so those songs became part of the canon, um, even outside of the show in a way that made people feel like they knew the show or they loved the show, even if they didn't ever, they hadn't seen it yet. Um, And then it came back in a different, you know, as a revival. Yeah. It sort of people got more interested in the show as songs would pop up like in cabarets or in reviews. One of my favorite stories about Broadway. I always say, I always say, I love to say one of my favorite stories. I have millions of my favorite stories, <laughs> but a story that I do love, maybe it's not my favorite, do story that I do love is that the reason why Trevor Nunn did the first English production of Baker's Wife is because he kept on hearing women come Metal in for Les Mis auditions. He kept hearing Metal Lark and Where is the Warmth and auditions <laughs> for Les Mis. And he's like, what is this? Um, <laughs> like Randy Graff sang Where is the Warmth. I think uh, some a bunch of women were singing Metal Lark for Les Mis originally and even for Cats. And he's like, what is this show? Mm-hmm. And so he got into it and uh, it was like, I want to put this on and like writes a whole new book for it. And that's sort of some, I feel like Whistle can relate to that of people going like, what's this song? What, what is this show? How have I never heard of this before? What do you mean Angela Lansbury was in? What do you mean? Lee Remick did a musical? Like that kind of stuff. The big legacy I think that the show has, one is the musical sequence of Simple. I think that is something that carries over later on, especially with Michael Bennett. Michael Bennett loved to do, to stretch how long a sequence could go on for. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Hello 12, Hello 13, Hello Love goes on for almost 20 minutes. Right. The whole opening sequence of Dreamgirls. Right. This idea of, songs don't have to necessarily end songs can blend into another song songs can blend into dialogue i think simple is a sh- is a sequence where it's one song stretched out and what the song does changes throughout the sequence eventually that graduates to like four songs can mesh together to create one whole string of a sequence so we actually hover 20 minutes of a show and four different songs in one fluid motion what else would you say is a legacy of whistle Well, I think we've touched upon so much of it already. It's like the complexity of the writing itself, not just the subject matter, but the way that he was like Sondheim was integrating pastiche and different kind of forms and like, you know, complicated lyrics and existing kinds of structures. Like there's so much in the style that, you know, carries on to later shows. Um, And, you know, I think that the way that he talks about trying to solve Allegro throughout his career, that the first time we really saw that was with Anyone Can Whistle, by Mm. which I mean like addressing um, the complexities of society and of um, problematic protagonists and conformity and like all of these different things that he tackles and maybe focuses in on different ways later with different musicals. And in in a very stylized abstract way that definitely makes way to the concept musical later. Yes, yes. Yes. Because Anyone Can Whistle is almost too much plot. And then Cabaret is sort of like, we're going halfway. Half of it is very plot heavy. Half of it just are songs that exist in this nowhere land. And then Hair's like, it all kind of just exists in a nowhere land. And then Company's like, okay, it all exists in a nowhere land, but there's a theme that holds it all together, not just like political statements. Like, and what we're talking about here is in like the most specific sense is concept musicals. And, you know, Allegro was a pioneering concept musical in a way that it's interesting what you said earlier about how um, we don't know what's a like landmark or groundbreaking until 10 years later, but clearly like Allegro and Love Life and some of the shows that were concept musicals that didn't get full credit because they weren't gigantic hits actually did clear the way for these later musicals we're now talking about. Yeah, I think when we talk about concept musicals, the the true 
the the true concept of a concept musical is that it starts with an idea of like you want to do something theatrically that's never been done before and that eventually evolves into a musical about about an idea not allegro which is hammerstein's like i want to encompass a man's whole life from birth to death and then figures out the plot through there and something like anyone can whistle which is like we wanted we want to go into psychoanalysts and uh discuss how everyone is not necessarily that everyone's insane but rather that everyone uh has their own pressures that that could be that could be interpreted as as insane to someone else and and how everything is just one giant construct and then again like they get bogged down by plot and i think as we progress in the 60s creative start to go this whole like getting bogged down by plot thing what if we just did away with it and and i we start to see at the end of this decade not with sana but at the end of this decade which then leads him to do some of his most groundbreaking work the idea of just sort of having shows exist in this nowhere land and mm-hmm. it takes place everywhere and nowhere and i like totally. that so let's go into our rapid fire questions round miss jen the Sondheim rhyme. What is your favorite lyric in this show? This is a weird answer, but I always like love. Um, tell us, Cora, how you are. I just got back from the reservoir because A, the way Angela Lansbury says reservoir. B, for some reason, my 12-year-old brain hearing this cast album always thought she was going to say cookie jar because that's like a rhyme and it's what the show's about. And for some reason, that's the silliest rhyme. It happens very early, but that always gets me. I'm like, I just love it. Next up, I had a dream cast. Who would you like to see in a production of this show? It's a great question. I found myself having more trouble with this than I usually would because I love that Encores cast so much. And I think that's who I would have dreamed of in that year because they were so fantastic. Um, I started thinking about a few things. First of all, I started thinking about Daniel Breaker as Halfgood, which I thought was like an interesting and cool idea. Mm -hmm. Um, But more than that, I started thinking about how all of my dream fantasies for Cora Hoover Hooper are not old enough to play the role. And so that's cool because it could be years before we're ready for like a Lindsay Mendez, anyone can whistle. Or um, one thing that made me laugh was, um, you know, Natalie Walker and Bonnie Milligan, who I love very much and have collaborated with, do this like great duo show. And I was like, what if we had an anyone can whistle where they switched off? Who was Cora Hoover Hooper? between Natalie and Bonnie, I started coming up with all these like women I'd love to see play that part who are all too young, which mm-hmm. I think is cool. Um, I had trouble thinking of a fae. I want to know your dream cast because honestly, I kept just being like, I love that Encores cast so much. It is a great Encores cast. My current uh, pick for Cora is, and maybe it's because I just recorded the Gypsy episode and this was Preston's like numero uno, uh, Jennifer Samard. I would love oh to see Jennifer God, Samard as Cora. So good. She'd be so good. Uh Beth Level, I'd also like to see as Cora. I think she'd do a really great job. Faye's a little trickier. I thought about Jesse Mueller. I think she'd do a pretty decent job. I would love to see Cynthia Orivo try it out. I think she would really do well with that sort of like dry, uh all rules, all science kind of person. I would love to also see her break out when she does the lady from Lords uh yeah. play with me. Hapgood is a little trickier because I think Raul was just so perfect for that role because he had a sincerity about him and also a fun kooky energy about him that you could understand why this guy got where he got and did what he did but also like you want yeah you just understood him like he made sense and I'm trying to think who 
I could see. I also like, thought of Bobby Conti Thornton, who's too young, but I think has has a, has a similar dichotomy of like can play it like the straight like an straight edge character, but also mm-hmm. you're like something's bubbling underneath. I had trouble honestly thinking of age appropriate good dream casting. Um, I mean, I guess it depends on age appropriateness, yeah. Uh, because the other thing about Half Good is that he has to be a little dreamy because that's mm-hmm. part of what gets Cora to. Uh, put the wool over her eyes when it comes to him because he harry guardino was a very handsome man raul famously a very handsome man scott bacula did it in the concert very handsome man there's gotta be a charm and a and a, a very uh classic 1960s male presence i do think bobby in like 20 years would really nail it. <laughs> he is he is too young i mean he he has a lot of mature energy to him i keep rem- forgetting that he's like four years younger than i am because in my mind, I'm like, oh, you could play my dad. But yes, I think totally. he, and I think like Norbert Leo Butts 10 years ago would have been a really great Hapgood. He's a little past that now. I think now he'd be a really great Shube or uh, one of the guys in the administration. Yeah, who would be? Um, Santino Fontana, just, I think, could do a good uh, Hapgood. Uh, Christian Borle, too, would do a good job. There's nothing I don't think Christian Borle would do a good job at. If you were like Mama Rose, I'd be like Christian Borle. Honestly, honestly, Christian Borle for Cora Hooper. A hundred percent, truly a hundred percent. What if we do, do that? Let's do a gender bent. Anyone can whistle. Christian Borle is Cora. Um, you know what? Fuck it. Natalie yes. Walker is half good, or Bob, <laughs> and Bonnie Milligan takes over for Act Two, and then Natalie goes back to Act Three. I love all of that. I would also see Christian Borle do a one man. Anyone can whistle. All of these things sound great. Love it. Uh, next up, God, that's good. Where does this show rank for you in the Sondheim canon, both personally? in your Sondheim shows and then objectively in his canon? I think, you know, it's somewhere in the middle personally for me. I think that the fact that we, like there are some Sondheim shows that I think are great, but I'm just sick of them. I'm like, I'm not going to say which ones, but I'm like, I just don't want to see another production of XYZ for 10 years. Cause like we see it too much. And mm-hmm. something about the fact that we never get enough. Anyone can whistle. Like I've only seen the encore production puts it, it, it helps it for me because I'm like, I want more. I want another, anyone can whistle. Um, so for that personally, it's like somewhere in the middle. Um, and this deep dive definitely made me appreciate it more. And in terms of his canon, I, I mean, love Look, I think it's brilliant, um, but it's clearly objectively not one of his like masterworks. Um, but it's still, I mean, it's like got a tremendous amount going for it. So I think it's still probably somewhere in the middle. How about you? But Jen, I don't know how to give my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> I've never been asked that before. Uh, yeah, I'm probably the same. It's in the middle of my favorite Sondheim stuff because I love so much about it. There's also, there's not, as much score as some of his other stuff that which is which we constantly forget jen this has been delightful thank you for coming on and talking about the whistle yeah thank you for having me and i just feel like i feel even more well informed on it now i'm so glad we did such a deep dive we did the deepest of dives which i was i knew was going to happen i emailed (laughs) when, when i was when i was coordinating this uh podcast and and the guests and i was figuring out who was going to do what I emailed Jen and I said, Jen knows everything. Have her do whistle because whistle is one of those things where people might know it, but they don't know it. And I was like, I need someone who's, I either need someone who knows it, knows it, or who's willing to learn. And most people were like, I don't really want to learn a new Sondheim show. I want to talk about the show I know. So I'm like, great. It's Jen because Jen knows all. 
I love that. But also like you don't find a lot of like anyone can whistle super fans, super freaks. It's not a show that people obsess about in that way, which mm-hmm. is a shame. So hopefully we'll get some more anyone can whistle obsessies out of this. Absolutely. And make sure to check in next week for the next show in the Sondheim canon, one that has no real super fans. But it's interesting to look at it anyway. Uh, one, do I hear a waltz? Which is the first Tony nomination for Stephen Sondheim. Insane. That's actually freaking crazy. Isn't like you th- look at his career and like that was the one? It makes no sense. Yes. Just like Julie Stein finally won his Tony Award for Hallelujah Baby. <laughs> I know. I love it. Yeah. It's just, Anyone like, can if, whistle investor Julie Stein. Like if just like if Glenn Close eventually wins for Hillbilly Elegy, it's like this is the thing. Right. Really? <laughs> Awards Jen, make all the sense in the world. They always do. Jen, where can people find you? Uh, people can find me at Jen Ashtep on Twitter, Instagram, and I'll see you there for some nerding out about musicals. Yeah, you can find me on Instagram at Matt Koplick, usual spelling. If you like the podcast, uh, rate, review, subscribe to us. Uh, write us a nice little review. Helps with the algorithm. I know I'm thirsty, but hey, I just gave you guys a new series, new artwork. I just put in the paint. I cover coded this whole thing. Show me some love. I don't know. You finished the hat. I love it. I love that you're doing this. Thank you for doing this. Of course. I'm glad that you, I'm glad that you're loving it. I'm glad that I can uh, entertain the world. Let me entertain you. I say, I was trying to think who to close out with that's whistle related. We've done Angela. We've done Bernadette. We've done Donna. We've done Sutton. Really our options are Lee Remick and Madeline Kahn. Mm-hmm. Do we dare go Lee Remick? Do we I like- think we have to. We've talked so much about her tonight and she was very important in Sondheim's life. So let's do Lee Remick. That's true. She, They were close friends and probably was the one woman he ever would have like gone straight for. <laughs> and in some ways and not in other ways, but it's a lovely friendship. It is a very lovely friendship. Um, Yeah, thank you so much for listening, guys. Uh, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Enjoy the other episodes. Get ready for Do I Hear a Waltz? And yeah, take us away, Lee. Bye. But I bury my rage with a boy half your age in the grass. Bet your ass. But I've done that already. Oh, didn't you know, love? Tell me how can I leave when I left long ago? Leave me the flat, leave me the brocks and chagalls and all that. You could leave me the stocks, the fence and the cat. Have you ever wondered how your favorite performer actually feels? Well, here's your chance. Welcome to The Quiet Part Out Loud with me, Bobby Steggert, Broadway actor and now a therapist to a whole host of Broadway creatives. Part interview, part therapy, this is not your typical podcast. We'll go right to the heart of things with some of your favorite artists, what they still struggle with, what lessons they've learned, what they haven't figured out yet. There's enormous power in saying the quiet part out loud. Are you listening? Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now 
and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org, because only together we rise.